You're listening to the Ali at UNT Retiree Spotlight Series, presented by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UNT and the UNT Retiree Association, or UNTRA. UNTRA is open to all retired faculty and staff who are interested in staying connected to life on campus. To learn more, visit untra.unt.edu. To learn more about OLLI at UNT, visit olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, OLLI at UNT Advisory Council Vice President, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as OLLI. I'm speaking today with Dr. Lenora McCroskey, a professor emeritus of music in the College of Music at UNT. In addition to teaching organ and harpsichord, she was the assistant director of early music studies, teaching Baroque performance and coaching Baroque chamber ensembles. She has studied extensively both home and abroad, receiving degrees in music and musicology from Stetson University, the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, and Harvard. Dr. McCroskey is also the recipient of numerous numerous prestigious awards. Welcome, Dr. McCroskey. Thank you. I'm it's, trying to remember what prestigious awards. I, well, yeah, there have been a few. Many, many. I uh, started yeah, to many. list them and I thought, oh my goodness, oh, there are so many. <laughs> they were wonderful. Okay, well, let's begin by just supposing that I know very little about the organ and the harpsichord and the music that go along with them, particularly the importance of these instruments in the wide world of music. So what would you say to orient me to an appreciation of them? Well, because I'm a music history buff, I would want to start at the very beginning. So I'll try to do that briefly. Sounds good. The organ has been around a long time. It was initially a hydraulis machine. And as far as we know, began in ancient Greece in the third century before Christ. Wow. Uh, yeah, exactly. For an organ, you have to have wind that goes through the pipes. And that wind was initially created by water water pressure, creating some wind pressure. But then by the seventh century, it was discovered wind was easier to deal with. And the organ initially was used as an outside instrument. From what we know, it was just a kind of a box with a bunch of pipes. It was used in festivals and parades and outdoor events because it was loud. And then it was brought into the church, I think the ninth century, maybe. And since then, it's been often mostly associated by people with the church because it just does such a good job of accompanying congregational singing or accompanying liturgical events in the church where the pastors or the clergy didn't want silence, so the organ played traveling music. Now, there's some wonderful organ builders in this country and also in Europe, and for a number of years have found organs back in concert situations. In the Meyerson in Dallas, there's a fabulous organ there, and it's used not as often as I'd like because I'm an organist, <laughs> but they have an organ series, and they use it in concerts with music. 
that requires the organ, both contemporary and earlier music, 19th century music sometimes. Other concert halls have had organs forever. It seems like Boston Symphony is one that comes to my mind because that's part of the country I'm really familiar with. There's an organ in New York City in one of the concert halls in San Francisco. There's one that looks like a box of McDonald's french fries. <laughs> it's really very funny to look at, but it's a really nice organ. And of course, here at UNT, there's organ in the, our concert hall in the Murkison. I know when you came to work at UNT, the organ was not a good organ. At UNT, the organ situation has improved enormously since I've been here. And I, I guess I've had a little bit to do with that anyway. Of course, one thinks immediately the, of the Murkison and the organ in the Murkison. It's a fine instrument. One of the things it does especially well is accompany choirs. When they've used the organ in pieces that, uh, uh, choral pieces that require the organ, it just supports so beautifully. The main auditorium organ is a 1914 initially. It's been improved or worked on um, over the, the decades, really. And now all the pipes are out. My understanding is because the building structure and walls were leaking and water is a bad thing for organs, really a bad thing for organs. And also air leaking. They closed up the windows in that hall in the main odd because of the air system. It just was, the windows were leaking. That's all there is to it. So now the organ is completely out, being rebuilt. It gets a new console, which is a really good thing, console being where the keyboards are. And so uh, there's a lot of excitement that that organ would be greatly improved. But in the meantime, in the main auditorium, there's a French Baroque organ, which I find is a joy. And that was given by Mr. Ottman. He gave the money. There was a church that wanted to get rid of it because it didn't. a French Baroque organ didn't serve their needs liturgically and they wanted to get rid of it. So North Texas bought it with Ottman's generous donation and it's installed in the side of the main auditorium and gives North Texas students the ability to listen to the, how the sounds would, have, would be in France with that French Baroque, particularly Baroque literature. It's nice. a marvelous instrument. Nice. It's fun to play. It's authentic, if we can use that word. It's mm -hmm. authentic. <laughs> and then there's a small organ in the recital, organ, organ recital hall in the music building, which is really quite nice. It's a good teaching instrument. The organ in the main auditorium will be rededicated uh, in, I think it's in February, March, by a wonderful French organist who's coming to play that concert. His name is Danielle Rott from Paris. What would you say to people that would like to know more about the organ and the harpsichord and how they can appreciate it and learn more about it? Google is a musician's and everybody else's best friend. I sometimes wonder what in the world we ever did without Google. To learn more about the organ, just Google organ history, organ timeline, and it's all there. I did that because I couldn't remember the dates of the early hydraulis. I just thought, okay, I know that's a long time ago. <laughs> and then also YouTube is the other thing that you can hear all kinds of instruments. But if you live in this area, then, you know, come to organ concerts. Go to the Meyerson. There's a number of churches 
in the Dallas-Fort Worth-Denton area that have beautiful instruments. So if you want to learn more, go listen in all kinds of ways you can go listen. That sounds like a great idea. Now can I talk about the harpsichord? Yes. (laughs) I want to hear about that. Well, the earliest harpsichords, as far as we know, with keyboards were first came along in the 16th, beginning of the 16th century, so about 1500. Because of the organ, there were already instruments with keyboards. Um, They first came about in Italy. I think there was a, a real respect for a plucked string sound, because that's what a harpsichord is. When I'm talking to kids about the harpsichord and showing them around. It's just a big guitar with a keyboard (laughs) because it it plucks the string. They were used in Baroque music, initially in opera, particularly to accompany singers. They are important support because they have a a tone that's really a fundamental tone. It's not too full of overtones. And you can move them around. So if you've got an opera in this hall or that somebody's house, then you just cart your harpsichord. I mean, I have one here in Denton that I cart around all the time Hmm. because they're easy to carry. But then they spread into other European countries and were the primary Baroque accompanying instrument along with other other plucked instruments, the theorbo, which is a big lute, the long neck with bass strings. But then uh, composers started writing literature really for the harpsichord alone. So there's lots of French literature, lots of Bach, lots of Italian music, lots of Spanish. I mean, it, it spread all over Europe. It came to the United States with the earliest settlers, again, because it's movable. And so there is in the Jefferson House in Virginia, there's a harpsichord. There are harpsichords in, I think, historic harpsichords in Charleston, Maybe I'm making this up. Uh, in Williamsburg, I know there's a harpsichord, an early harpsichord. And there are some, there's a, one of the earliest Italian instruments is in the Vermilion Music Instrument Collection in Vermilion, South Dakota. Hmm. It's in the University of South Dakota in Vermilion. That's 1536. It plays. It's gorgeous. I've heard concerts on it and recordings of it. It's just a beautiful sound. So if you want to hear harpsichords, early harpsichords, go to Google, go to YouTube. You'll find them right there. I bet you'd love to play something like that, wouldn't you? I have played something have like you? that. Yes. And I have an instrument. At, I mean, I live at Good Sam, so I have a harpsichord in my, an Italian harpsichord that is authentic, shall we say. It even had the, the plectra that plucked the strings are even Canadian goose quill, which is real. It's not plastic. <laughs> it's real. That's it's a wonderful. wonderful. That's what drew you to this music. Oh my. My mom. My whole family on both sides, my mother's and my dad's side, ha- are have music music in their histories. My mom played the organ and the piano. My grandmother on my dad's side played the piano. My grandfather on my mother's side played the piano. He learned in the music schools when he was a boy. He played from shape notes. That's what he read. Uh, Shape notes. Oh, shape notes mean that each note on the scale has a different shape. 
So you get circles and triads, triangles and upside down triangles and squares and rectangles and all kinds of different shapes for the different pitches. So that's how people learn to sing by looking at the shape of the note. I can't read it, but interesting. it's really interesting, but that's how he learned. So he had a hymnal, an old Baptist hymnal that had shape notes. You can still find them, but not in use, but you can, they're around. You can find them. Very interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. But then I wanted to play the piano. And so my mom, I had to talk her. I don't know why. She was so hard to convince. <laughs> <laughs> I really did want to do this. And I had a cousin who's a little older than me who played the piano. And we always went to church. And there was organ, there were organs and pianos in church. And she and I used to play duets with the organ and the piano in church. And I just thought it was absolutely wonderful. And then at some point in college, I heard a harpsichord. So we used to put thumb we put thumbtacks in an old upright junker, junky piano, think, you know, trying to make it sound like a harpsichord. Because at Stetson, we didn't have a harpsichord when I first <laughs> went there a long time ago. Did it work? Oh, it worked. It didn't sound like a harpsichord. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I thought it had an unusual sound. It was a funny sound. And then uh, my organ professor took four of us, my classmates, to Harlem, Holland in the summer for a workshop. Hmm. A Harlem, it was called the Harlem Organ Academy. But for two weeks, he had to get permission to bring college students. We were young, too young, didn't usually admit our age. But the, I decided to take an organ class and a harpsichord class. And I fell in love. I fell I in love with it. the teacher, and I fell in love with the, everything about it. I fell in love because the uh, both the organ professor, Anton Heiler, and the harpsichord professor, Gustav Leonhardt, knew the historical background of the music and the instruments and talked a lot about that. And I had just never, I mean, I took music history, but, you know, mm -hmm. in one ear and out the other. But I just thought, this is what I'm interested, this is what I love. I really want to know this background to this music mm -hmm. and also to this instruments. So I came back to Stetson and said, that's what I want to do. I thought it was musicology. <laughs> wrong. So I went to Harvard for my master's degree in musicology. And it wasn't what you thought it was? Oh, no. <laughs> it took me a week. And I ended up in John Ferris's office in Memorial Church because I had discovered the choir there and auditioned and got in. This is not what I want. Now, what was musicology? It really is the study of Music, all uh -huh. music, the history of music. Okay. I wanted performance practice. Uh -huh. I wanted to know how they did it and how we could do it that might be close to the way they did it, <laughs> whoever they was. And did you get more, more of that with going to the church and being in the choir? or A little bit. Yeah. But he persuaded me that I should just stick it out and see what happened. Sure. And I did that first semester. Uh -huh. And I was miserable. I cried at home. I cried in his office. I cried in my musicology professor office. There was more red on my musicology papers than I had written in black. It was horrible. 
The second semester, it was about lute music, the music right. class that, that all graduate first-year graduate students have to take. I thought, okay, this is a whole lot better. And turns out we had to play pieces in that class, which I could do. That's what you wanted. Better than anybody, uh-huh. if I could brag, better than okay. anybody else in the class. I could play this. I could sight read this music. This was not a big deal. And my musicology professor noticed. And so I got hired that summer for, by him to transcribe some lute tablature. Oh, how wonderful. It was marvelous. And yeah. he really came to bat for me those two years I was at Harvard. And it was his office that I had cried so much in. Yeah. But I can imagine that study must have given you a good sense of the instruments and of the music. Didn't oh, it yes. broaden everything for you? Well, in fact, I was wondering, actually, when you learn a period like Baroque music, right. okay, you're going back to a certain period in time, yes. Did you learn more uh, about the history? I mean, I understand. Is that Was that what you were learning in musicology, or did you find in studying the music that you learned more about the Ooh, people that, at the time? That's a really good question. I have to think about it a minute. Um, in studying the music, particularly with the people I studied with, they were interested in the historical, and so it was talked about, particularly... In my harpsichord studies that year, when I, I oh I did go back to Holland. I went back to Amsterdam after grad school actually, and studied a year with Leonhardt, which was unbelievably fabulous. But I think learning about the music meant learning about the people, mm-hmm. learning about the people who who performed it, who wrote it, and who wrote about it. There are a number of treatises from that period, if we're talking about the Baroque, say in France. There are a number of papers and treatises and and prefaces to to music volumes. Composers wrote about what they wanted and what they were trying to say, what you should do and what you should not do, how to play their pieces. Frescobaldi is a wonderful example, an Italian composer from the 17th century who gives you a list of things that you should do in order to play his pieces. The first chord should be arpeggiated. You should take the tempo sometimes fast, sometimes slow. So you think, okay, that's probably also the way they lived. Hmm. If they're gonna talk about their music like that. And if they're interested in performing it the way they wanted, which means leads us back to performance practices, which means I wanna know how they performed their music so that it sounds close anyways, but I mean, we can't really know, but it sounds as close as we can get to uh, what they might have had in mind. And I think that's important. That's honesty. That's honesty toward a composer. And one tries to do that, I think. That's beautiful. Did you find when you went to Europe that there was an edge for being able to do that there versus here? At that time, yes. Okay. Now, no. Why is that? Americans have just caught on, I guess. There are are performing groups who are interested in historical performance all over the country. They're 
all over the place. Even, I mean, where you wouldn't imagine. Even the, the coasts, Boston first, and then San Francisco were the leaders in that movement. Oberlin had a Baroque performance practice two weeks every summer, even back in the 70s is when I think it started, probably, or late 60s, early 70s, 70s, early 70s. People just wanted to know. Yeah. And now, they're, I mean, really, literally, I'm not going to name any cities because I don't want to insult anybody, <laughs> but in the middle of the country, in the middle of maybe where you wouldn't imagine there are Baroque groups. There are Baroque groups. That's great. Well, you're the founder and co-founder of a multitude <laughs> of Baroque ensembles right. in Cambridge, Rochester, right. Fort Worth, right. Denton, Denton, right, right here. Right. Tell us about what that entails and <laughs> the draw that they Actually, hold for you. Oh, well, it's part of wanting to play like they played. And also just a, a real deep love of that literature. I just love that literature. Putting a group together is simple because there are lots of play people who want to play. Funding a group like that is really tough. I remember in Cambridge, we started a group called Baroque Folk. <laughs> and I had, it spelled with the Qs. Um, <laughs> right, F-O-L-Q-U-E. That's cute. Um, it was cute. I mean, this is the 70s. And it was easy to find people to play. And we played for free. We just, you know, carted my harpsichord around and played for free. And then began to get paid a little bit. <laughs> that paid for the rental of the truck to cart the harpsichord. When I came, when I went to Rochester, that group was um, part of the faculty. There were faculty members and people in town who wanted to play. I don't remember, we, I don't think we went out very much to play. We played at school, the Eastman Baroque Ensemble. There was a Baroque group at Eastman that I wasn't in charge of. Paul Odette, who's a fabulous lute player and still there, and his wife plays the viola da gamba. Uh, so I just kind of hooked in with what was going on when I got to Eastman already. Uh, when I came down here, I got an invitation from a guy in Oklahoma to bring a group to Eastern, Western Oklahoma, Central Oklahoma University, I don't remember which. So I thought, uh-oh, I don't have a group here. I better put a group together. So it was easy. Yeah. It was just easy. Um, there you, were people around who wanted to play. You mentioned that you played for free at we first. Oh, I yes. think that that's when you know that's these people have a passion, <laughs> right. and that's when you know you're truly a musician. When you go and play for free, it doesn't matter. It doesn't <laughs> matter where you are, and probably didn't matter who the audience was. Oh, not did at all. It? You no. just wanted to play. We just wanted to play. The exactly. beauty of playing. Right. Well, I can just hear from what you're telling me, which is so interesting that you were a great teacher. I mean, it just comes across. Your love of the subject, your love of the music, and uh, I know your students, including Stephen Wayne Foster, who won the very first Dallas International Organ Competition held at Meyerson Symphony Hall, have won numerous prizes and hold significant positions around the country, most likely across the world. I don't know. I could just find them here in the United <laughs> States, but I would imagine they're sprinkled around everywhere. Maybe. And it speaks volumes about your teaching talents. And I'd like to read a quote from you in the North Texas Daily. 
One learns more from students than they learn from you. I've grown in the understanding of different cultures. I admire how many students sacrifice to follow their dreams here. Students who have no support system outside of school still manage to succeed tremendously. Their tenacity astonishes me. Great quote. Can you talk about that? Oh, wow. I, I do love to, I still love to teach. I taught so many different personalities. One of the beautiful things about North Texas is it supports its College of Music. I mean, it costs a lot of money for one-on-one -on -one teaching, and that's mostly what I did. You know, I'd have a studio, say, 12 to 15 students. They paid me to teach one student at a time, not a big class of 500, which is really speaks just volumes of how supportive and, and really quite wonderful that the College of Music is. So, Explains the reputation that well, it has. <laughs> yes, I think it probably does. But I had students from all kinds of cultures, but also students from here in the United States with such different backgrounds. And I learned, um, I never thought of myself as an intolerant person, but I learned more about tolerance. Mm -hmm. I learned about more about their circumstances and their families and what they did have to overcome. I learned about different cultures, a different student's background from the, in their families. I always loved to meet families because I learned so much when I met parents. Sometimes they were really passionately behind their students, their kids, and sometimes they really weren't. I have one student, uh, the other things, I'm still in touch with a lot of my students, which is really important to me. It They're, doesn't surprise me. Friends. But I had a gal, her family thought that they had put themselves through school, so she should put herself through school. Really talented organist. They didn't give her any support, which they could have done, but they didn't. And so she worked all kinds of jobs to pay for tuition. We did get her scholarship, thank goodness, but she would have been a better organist mm. if she had more time to practice. Mm -hmm. She went on to New England Conservatory. She lives in the Boston area now. I'll try not to identify anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but she is extraordinarily successful. She has a wonderful church job in a suburb of Boston and she has brought different artists to that church. She has different series. She's gotten involved in the American Guild of Organists in Boston. She's also got a family with three wonderful kids. And to watch her over the years, to hold her first baby, to, to actually, you know, be able to, not, I didn't hood her because she was an undergraduate, but, you know, to watch her graduate, having done what she did, and she, would, she just was, She's just wonderfully successful, and she overcame so much. She's the person who came to mind when I was reminded of what I said. But there are plenty others. And it speaks, I think, to the passion of wanting to be a musician. I, have, I often told students, if you can do anything else other than music, you should. Because music is hard. Nobody makes a great, or very few people make great livings out of it. You're, 
you're just not paid a bunch, except for the few. And none of my kids or former graduates are paid a bunch of money. So you have to have to do it. You have to have to do it. But learning to deal with all kinds of things with kids, to, to learn about posture, to learn about how to fix when they aren't playing very well because they're not sitting very well. And the organ is a crazy instrument to play because you're, you, you, you're cantilevered over these pedals. And so it's hard on the back. And if you're not careful, you're in trouble. Your arms have to be in a particular position. You're, you have to sit where you're supposed to sit so you don't kill your back. I'm happy to say I never had a student with arm troubles. None of my kids ever had tendonitis. And Is that a common thing oh, yeah, with people can, learning? Oh yeah, that can be a, a common problem with keyboard players in general is tendonitis. But you fix them not yours. It starts, not mine. I <laughs> never had one. We had a teacher here, a guest. Let's see, I have to be careful here. We had a guest teacher who talked about how to play. And my students came back and said, it hurts. I said, watch that person play, because I had also watched that person play. And that person, I'm <laughs> being very careful, that person did not play the way that person was saying the kids should play. I said, okay, in lessons, do what that person is asking. But when you leave the lesson, do what you know is best for your body. It will work, and you'll be fine. And that was the case. They were fine. But, you know, you you, you have to know yeah. how to, to deal with this when you're teaching. That's the beauty of having a good teacher. That's the beauty of experience. having I did. Boy, I had a good teacher. Yeah. I had good teachers, plural. Yeah. I really did. That's I great. I was lucky. Very lucky. I love the title of the concert given <laughs> to celebrate your retirement from UNT. And it sounds so appropriate after talking to you. After a 27-year career in the College of Music, it was, the title was, Plays Well with Others. <laughs> How do you presently satisfy this love for music? Oh, my. I am now playing continuo play and accompanying the Nittenbach Society. Many of those concerts are Baroque music, so I get to play continuo, and we bring in instrumentalists, and sometimes we get to play an instrumental piece by ourselves, which this last Dittenbach concert we did get to do. I play with a fabulous cellist who's a UNT grad, and, and he also plays viola da gamba, and he played a set of German variations. We had a great time. And somebody commented to my husband, Lenora looks so happy when she plays with Eric. It's true. And then I also conduct choir in my church, which I adore. I always loved conducting singers, working with singers. And when I taught at UNT, I didn't get to do that as much as I would have liked to, quite frankly. You come to, you're hired at UNT to do what you're supposed to do, and that's what you do. And that's your specialty. <laughs> that's your specialty, and, and that's it. what you do. Yes. Somebody else is doing the other thing you might like to do, uh, which is also just fine. But now I have a choir. And COVID kind of knocked us out for a little while, but we're okay. We're back. My church, we hire four scholarship singers. And when COVID hit and we shut down uh, and we're on 
Zoom and recording and all that mess. My church didn't want them to lose that income, which I just thought was so impressive. It is. I didn't start that. The session of my church said, we don't want the students to lose their income. How wonderful. So for a while, that was all I had to work with, those singers, for recording. And then gradually we could get a little bigger and invite some of our choir members back. But, yeah, I just was so impressed with them. Well, COVID was such a hard time for musicians, particularly performances were non-existent. Practically. And, you know, we tried Zoom Mm. concerts together. That was funny. (laughs) It was impossible. Yeah. And so some places uh, did, you you pre-recorded your part to a click track, and then some editor who knew what they were doing, and it wasn't me, put it all together. But that's not satisfying because no. you're not singing with anybody. No. You're singing with yourself. I tried it once, and I thought, I'm not sending that in. That sounds horrible. <laughs> and so, you know, people did it, but it's just not very satisfying. And you hear the results, and, and it works because somebody's really technologically talented, but not me. So what a joy. It to was be able joy. to be back yeah. together it's again. It's a joy. It that is, is really a joy. a joy. I am so grateful for both the Dittenbach and for, yeah. And I get asked around to play. I'm playing a Messiah in Dallas in December. And, uh, I, you know, I don't get asked as often. One, I'm old. And two, <laughs> my students take my gigs. <laughs> <laughs> I think here comes another student who's a... I, a wonderful organist and a great continual player, and I don't get to do it so much anymore. But that's what my job was, yeah. in fact, to train my replacements. Well. So the place well with others was kind of a nod because I played another solo retirement recital. Yeah. But the place well with others, I thought, this organ really, and it was partly to highlight the organ in the Merkinson. Uh-huh. Um, this play, this organ really does play ensemble music really very well. Mm-hmm. So I asked some colleagues to come and play on that recital, which they did. Two of our esteemed but now deceased faculty members, which were, who were a joy to work with, Christine in percussion and Keith Johnson, trumpet player. John Scott, who was the dean then, on flute, also played with me flute. So it was a wonderful concert. Sounds like it must have been. Yes. And we played a piece by a, a UNT composer, and and I stole the title from what you say in your report card in kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> it plays well with others. Oh, it was terrific. I love it. Can you speak about the importance of music education in a person's life? Oh, my. One of the things that I think is documented in the literature, but school boards don't get, is how critical music education is in the schools. There are studies after studies after studies that emphasize how much better students do in all subjects if they have a music background. And then when they are older and looking for jobs, Often, I think about Microsoft, for instance, who used to, I don't know what now, but they used to hire musicians without 
almost much thought because musicians, uh, they do play well with others, but they also can work independently. They are self-starters. They know how to follow directions, but they are also innovative and clever in solving problems. And I just think the study of music is critical for our education system and also for just informing the populace. Um, we teach our students not to necessarily be professional musicians, but to be um, informed citizens. And I think we need more of that quite frankly, in this country. We absolutely do. You know, I was thinking about what you're saying about the benefits of younger people learning music. I, I have two thoughts to that. One was that it, I'm wondering if it doesn't help in developing a person cognitively to actually tap in to the part of your brain, which is the other side of the the brain actually right. mm -hmm. for music and sounds yes. rather than some of the other so you're you're getting more of a full development on that yes and then also just thinking of the self-discipline in practicing music i mean that's a great skill yes. for someone growing up yes it certainly is <laughs> and a necessary skill if you're going to be a musician and if you're going to be a good citizen i mean and a you good have, citizen. You have to have a long, um, oh, what's the word? Atten you have to have a long attention span yes. when you work in music because it takes time to learn a piece. Yes. You can't just spend five minutes and quit. You won't be successful. And so it's just, it makes a well-rounded citizen, and that's important. It is. And... It makes sense too, and what a great skill in developing responsibility. Yes, yes. I've never thought about it that Absolutely. way before. That's very interesting. Absolutely, I think it's. I you know I you hear about schools cutting their arts programs, their music programs, and I think, oh, what a foolish, yes, heartbreaking. And it happens decision. often when they have to make a cut. It often happens. Yes, it enriches a person's life in a number of ways, in societal ways, because you learn to be part of a community. I think it enriches one's life because it can be a tool for learning to, to tap in to your non-working, non-factual based life. Just to sit down and listen to a symphony or somebody singing or a sonata puts you in another place, gets you out of yourself, helps you understand the importance of communication because that's what performing is about, is communicating to a listener um, and, and also kind of communicating with your own spiritual self or your own mental health space self. I don't know the words. I can only really speak of my own 
experience. But I have met so many people who have said, I started taking music lessons when I was blah, 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 and quit. And I am so sorry now that I quit. And my response to that is always, it's never too late. Amen to that. There's a man I know who has Parkinson's disease. I don't know whether he had musical training earlier, but he takes piano lessons now. And the improvement, because I know him reasonably, I mean, I see him often and hear him occasionally and know about him and know his teacher. Um, The improvement in his musicianship has been amazing to me. The last time I heard him play, I thought, how has he done this? But I also know that in his health, everybody knows that if you play music to somebody who can't even remember their name or their mother's name or their spouse, if you play music, that person taps in to what they learned as a child. I saw, or as an adult for that matter, in their professional life, I saw a video recently of a ballet dancer who had dementia who could do nothing practically now in a home and somebody played Swan Lake recording for her and she can't walk and but she started moving her arms in the poses that she used as a dancer and they juxtapositioned the video of her now and the video of her oh video of her dancing and it was remarkable I saw another video of somebody who had Parkinson's who they played some music and with an attendant and he um, could stand up straighter with his music and she invited him to move and then she invited him to dance. So they took the standard waltzing dance positions. He dropped his cane. He moved very fluidly. I I almost cried. I thought, oh my word, that's just amazing. And there are lots of videos of of pianists who, you know, the same situation, dementia, and now they can play, but they can't remember their daughter's name. Yeah. I would think the benefits of learning music as you're older that you addressed also, not only learning it as a performer or as a player, a person who's a musician performing the music, but just the appreciation of listening to the music. I mean, Mm -hmm. music touches you somewhere. Oh, yeah. It touches your soul. Yes, it really does. And, you know, that's important for our society to recognize. Yeah, absolutely. I I wish the world recognized that more. But I want to say something about Texas and football. Yes. I get teased in my travels to other places, particularly the Boston area. Oh, Texas, it's just about football. I say, be careful Mm. because football has to have bands and bands have to be really good to be competitive in Texas. And so the school systems in some way, I don't know, support their, the musical community, particularly at this point, UNT students who get jobs teaching independent lessons, but to the band students, the band kids in the schools in the area. So 
don't knock football before you know a little bit about what's happening in the background, particularly for our musicians, for our students who need those jobs to pay for school. Well, that's another very interesting, different perspective. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. Not, oh, Texas football. Don't knock it. Well, thank you very much. This has just been fascinating. Well, thank it you. It really has. Well, I'm talking about my favorite subject. Well, you, you, you do One a of good them. job at One it. of them. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Thank you for asking me. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Lenora McCroskey. Again, my thanks to Morgan Geringer and Perry Hamilton from Special Collections at the UNT Library for their invaluable research assistance. Thanks for listening. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast. 